4, it says in Isaiah 44, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, be not afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock, I know not one. Uh, What a glorious combination. The more we exalt him, uh, the more it is well with our soul. The higher we see him um, and his faithfulness, his greatness. Um, Thank you, Roman, for leading us in worship. Um, You may be seated. We'll let the kids uh, make their way out to children's ministry. Everyone can have a little more breathing space. Well, while the kids are making their stampede to the basement, um, I invite you to take out your Bibles. Um, We are working verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I just invite you to put up your hand, and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open and in front of you. Maybe you forgot it at home. Maybe you don't have one. Um, If that's the case, we just encourage you to keep this one. It's our gift to you. Thrilled to have you take it. But Genesis 27 is where we're going to spend Uh, our time this morning, uh, again, as we make our way through this beautiful book of Genesis. Well, the year was 1739. Uh, David was a young man, 19 years old, and after a long struggle and fight against the grace of God, the Lord finally and gloriously transformed his heart. Only two months after his conversion, uh, Dale Uh, David uh, enrolled in Yale College and uh, seeking to be trained and deployed into the ministry. At that time, it was required. Anyone seeking a pastorate had to hold a degree either from Harvard or Yale or one of the established European universities. In the third year of his study, um, the Second Great Awakening began sweeping across the nation, and of course, uh, Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant and others would, would stop at Yale, and the gospel fervor began to grow. David, um, having been just the, the top of the top of his class academically, um, being a gifted communicator and, and just a natural leader among the students, um, was labeled by the students the new light. That was his nickname as they had this great hope that he would lead the revival forward. David, along with his wit and his zeal and his, and his gift to communicate, also possessed what Jonathan Edwards called an intemperate and indiscreet zeal. Um, Translation, he's a bit of a hothead and and a sharp tongue. While debating the merits of this new revival with one of his university tutors, David blurted out in frustration that his professor had no more grace than a chair. That was enough to have the new light expelled from Yale. And though he repented in tears and appealed the decision, um, forgiveness was granted, but restoration never came. Without a university degree, David was barred from the ministry of the church. 
This incredibly talented, gifted young man seemed to be God's man in the right place as things were moving, now had his entire career swept away by one moment of anger. It was an unmitigated disaster for David. Seemingly this great loss for the cause of the gospel. The simple reality is sin makes a mess. It makes a mess. Our sin makes a mess. It's destructive. It brings pain, brokenness, chaos. Looking this morning at Genesis 27, that's where we find ourselves right in the middle of a big, gross mess. This chapter is just full of sinful disaster. Every character that enters brings in and just spills over with with sin and chaos and deception and destruction, um, their own sinful, disgusting mess. And so as we examine this this moment in the life of Isaac, um, we left asking ourselves, where is God in the mess? Where is God in the mess? As we turn our attention to Scripture, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for your truth. God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can open your word and see your infallible, trustworthy word, that it is sufficient for us. The man of God may be equipped for every good work. Lord, would you soften now our hard hearts? God, would you open our ears to hear your truth? God, we are so easily hardened of heart by the deceitfulness of sin. And we need the work of your spirit to pull back the veil, give us eyes to see even that which we don't want to see, but that we might be sanctified, that we might be transformed by your spirit through your word into the image of Christ for the glory of the Father. God, would you be at work through me now? Would you take my um, stammering tongue, my imperfect words, and use them for your glory? God, if there's anything I prepare to say that is not true to your word, those, would those words fall to the ground and be left behind and forgotten? Um, but God, may your word go forth this morning and may it accomplish in our hearts that which you have set out for it to do. God, we lay ourselves open before you. Um, Would you be at work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, the first thing we see as we look into this chapter uh, is the failure of Isaac and Esau. Um, The failure of Isaac and Esau. I've been saying chapter 27, um, but if you were here last week, you know we stopped just short of the end of chapter 26, and so we have a couple of left-behind verses to pick up, and, uh, and, and I think that's fitting. I think these verses lead into chapter 27, so we're going to start at the end of chapter 26, verse 34, um, and I'm just going to read the first section down to the end of 27, verse 4. So Genesis 26, starting at verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, 
He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, to bring it to me that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, seems like a fairly innocuous passage in some ways until you begin to peel back the layers of the context and the situation here. Uh, first of all, there's these two verses at the end of chapter 26, and, and I think they're setting us up for chapter 27. Esau, Isaac's oldest son, married two wives from among the Hittites. Now, that's significant, both that it's Two wives, if you remember back to Lamech, was the first to take two wives and it didn't go well for him. And Abraham took on Hagar and it didn't go well for him. And so people argue, well, didn't the patriarchs have multiple wives? Yes, they did, tragically, and it didn't go well for them. Um, and, And that's what we're supposed to see here. Not only two wives in the theme of Lamech, but but two Hittite wives. The Hittites were from the people of Canaan the people that God had promised to destroy because they were wicked. They were notoriously perverse. And of course, bringing these two Hittite wives into the family made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. There was tension. Remember, it was Esau who was so consumed with his present desire, so overtaken by his flesh that he sold his birthright to Jacob um, because he was hungry. He wanted a bowl of stew. Verses 34 and 35, we see he's not changed. He still has no regard for the the blessings of God. And that's what leads us into chapter 27, changes the way maybe we see these first few verses. Um, Despite Esau's character... Isaac has decided to forge ahead, determined to pass the blessing and the birthright to Esau instead of Jacob. And and again, not only is this Esau's problematic character, to say the least, but if you remember from chapter 25, before the twins were even born, as they were jostling in Rebekah's stomach, the Lord made this um, proclamation that he had chosen Jacob rather than Esau, that the the older would serve the younger. That was God's plan laid out for them to see. That's what God had said. They knew it. But we're also told early on that Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. They had favorites. And so even though God had chosen Jacob, even though Esau had had despised his birthright, sold it for a pot of stew, counted the the blessing of God as nothing and and continued to disregard it by taking on multiple Hittite wives, Isaac grew in his old age, possibly failing in health, is now determined to still bless Esau, his favorite son. This is tragic. Esau in his old age, sorry, Isaac in his old age, uh, is not growing in godliness, but rather he's been growing in rebellion. He's been steadily hardening himself to what the Lord has commanded. And now, deceptively and and preemptively, he sets out to put his rebellion into action. Somewhat poetic here. Isaac is old and his eyes are dim so that he cannot see. 
But it's not just his physical sight that's clouded, is it? Much more significantly, his spiritual vision is clouded. Clouded by his favoritism for his older son. Clouded by his his own judgment of what a strong leader would be. His own wisdom of what would be best. Clouded by his love for a good meal. Seems that Esau came by this, this being driven by the flesh fairly honestly. Isaac allowed his own wisdom, his own sinful desires to cloud his judgment of of right and wrong to the point of of outright opposition against God. This is Isaac, who was portrayed in just the last chapter as, as the one following in the footsteps of his father Abraham. He was this carbon copy of Abraham, the man of faith, and, and here he steps out in complete rebellion. One of my favorite things to do in the summer is to be out at the lake, and uh, the kids are playing in the sand. My wife's going to set up with a book in the sun, and I want to jump in my canoe and paddle off until the voices grow quiet, throw my paddle down, and, and just lay in the bottom of the boat and take a nap. Maybe, maybe jump out of the boat and put my feet on the gunnels and let my life jacket hold my face just above the water and, and just relax. The problem is, even on a day that feels perfectly still, you put your paddle away, you begin to drift. Even only 20 minutes and all of a sudden you, you crack an eye open and you peek above the gunnels and, and the beach has moved significantly. You fall asleep for an hour and you've got work to do just to get back to where you were. It appears that's what Isaac has been doing as he grow old. He, he put his paddle away and he's just drifting and, and you, never, you never drift upwind. We never drift against the current. None of us is immune. None of us has reached that, that point in our spiritual lives where we can just put the paddle down and coast. We've made it. I've reached a pertin, certain point of sanctification. I'm pretty sure I'll just kind of naturally grow uphill from here. No. Now, Isaac was susceptible to this slow drifting away from the Lord, this, this drifting that led him to outright rebellion against God. We can make some speculations here. What, what Isaac's uh, excuses would have been. God, this doesn't make sense. This is not the way it's done. The oldest gets the blessing. That's the right way. That's the way it's supposed to work. God, Esau is is strong and and he's a man's man. He's a hunter. He's a a leader. Jacob is soft. He hangs out with his mom. He cooks. Isaac knows better. Better enough that he's willing to look at the Lord and say, I know what you've said, but this is what I want. This is what feels right to me, regardless of what you've said. And and none of those things matter. If the Lord has spoken, if it's clear from God, then it doesn't matter. James warns us, James 1, 14 and 15, that each of you is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, what is fully fully grown, brings forth death. That's where it starts. Simple desires that percolate, that we let stew, that we don't kill and mortify. Luring us, tempting us, leading us to sin and ultimately to death. And so 1 Peter 5.8 warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Listen, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I don't know about you, if there's a, a lion running around Olds, a lion escaped from the Calgary Zoo, made his way to Olds, he has not eaten for three days and he's walking around town, I'm not taking my kids for a walk. I'm not going for a stroll casually. I'm not going to take a nap out on the, in the park in the back. It's not safe. I'm going to be on guard. I'm going to be watchful, ready to fight ready to protect my family. Sanctification. Putting sin to death is, is not something you do just for the, the first couple of years of your Christian life and then you just get to coast. It's not something that happens when you take a nap. The battle that we fight is, is serious. We need to be on guard. Fight with, with a fearful diligence until the day we die or Jesus takes us home. Check your heart constantly. Are you, are you, like Isaac, slowly drifting, allowing those desires to lure you? Get to know your desires. Be aware of your sinful heart. What are the things that tend to, to creep up? Keep company with godly brothers and sisters who will be an anchor for you, who can look in and call you out on those things. If you're already at that point, walking in disobedience to God, you've decided it doesn't matter. I know what God says, but this is what I want. Repent. Repent. Turn to God. Walk in obedience. That's the, the failure of Isaac and Esau, and we keep building on that. Secondly, we see the fraud of Rebekah and Jacob. The fraud of Rebekah and Jacob Take a bigger chunk here looking um, from verse 5 all the way down to verse 29. Um, follow along as this story plays out. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and Prepare for me a delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. And so he we went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of Jacob, her son. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob answered his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. 
I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Esau said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. And Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And so Jacob went near Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near, kiss me, my son. And so he came near and he kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of the garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord, be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So, the plot thickens and the mud deepens. We get a deeper glimpse into this family, and we just see more and more brokenness and dysfunction. Clearly, Isaac and Rebecca are not talking about their decisions. They are not working this out as a, as a team, as a married couple together, um, but in competition with one another, in deceit against one another. They each have their own favorite child. Isaac's own wife is spying on him and, and then devising a plan to subvert him. His whole family is so fractured by sin. There's no trust here. There's no unity here. That's on Isaac. He has not led his family well. He has been coasting and his family has been crumbling. Interestingly, uh, again, as Esau is driven by his desires, seems to have learned that from his father, Jacob is deceitful and he seems to have learned that from his mother. Parents, this is terrifying. These little human beings in our homes are watching us. They're learning things. Rebecca embraces the division and the deceit and she devises this plan to fool her husband, to trick him into blessing Jacob rather than Esau. Jacob questions the plan for a moment, verse 12, but notice the, the, the specific point of his hesitancy. He doesn't say this is wrong or this is sinful or this is against the Lord. He, he's just worried that he'll get caught, that he'll get cursed instead of blessed. He's worried that he would seem to be mocking his father. Why would it seem that way? Because it was. He had no problem with that. He just didn't want to get caught. Rebecca goads him on. Together they make a, a meal the way that Isaac liked it. Rebecca disguised Jacob in the clothes of Esau and then put the skin of goats on his hands and on his neck. And, and if you remember, um, Esau is not just an ordinarily hairy man. Um, he, is, he was born 
covered in hair from head to toe. Um, he is unique. Um, I, I remember years ago seeing a story um, of uh, uh, a, a syndrome called werewolf syndrome or hypertrichosis. You can, you can Google that later. I'll, I'll see you if you do it now. You're going to start snickering. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, maybe that's what Esau had um, covered in hair. Um, it's fairly rare, but that could be the extent of it. At any rate, um, Jacob disguised his brother and, and brought this uh, disguised as his brother, brought this meal into his father, and, and four times he, he overtly, directly lies to his father. Um, the second of those, Isaac asks him, how is it he returned to, so soon? And, and Jacob is now so entangled in his lie that he even brings the Lord into his lie, saying, well, as God prospered my hunt, you can just see how quickly this is sucking him in and, and, and entangling him. Isaac took the meal and he ate it. Still suspicious, he, he, he's still trying to tempt this, uh, test this strange scenario. And so he called Jacob closer, come and kiss your father. He smells the smell of Isaac's clothes and that seems to confirm it for him. For a man who is driven by the desires of his flesh, now every one of his senses are fooled. And ultimately he is betrayed with a kiss. And the ruse worked. Isaac blesses Jacob. And, and thinking that he's blessing Esau, he, he blesses him abundantly. There are two basic elements to this blessing as we just have a look at it. Um, prosperity and dominion. Verse 28 blesses him with prosperity. The dew of the heavens, the fatness of the earth, the plenty of grain and wine. That's a picture of wealth and abundance and God's provision. The second element is dominion that peoples and nations would serve him, that his brothers would submit to him. Finally, the end of verse 29, this is straight out of the promise that God made to Abraham. Um, cursed be anyone who curses you, and blessed be anyone who blesses you. And so in one sense, the final result is it worked. Rebecca and, and Jacob got their way. They got the blessing. The plan was successful. And interestingly, it worked in accomplishing what the Lord had decreed, right? This was God's plan. The Lord had said that Jacob would be blessed. And, and so where Isaac and Esau simply rebelled, doing the wrong thing for the wrong motives, at least Rebekah and Jacob, um, they, they did it the wrong way, but it was for good reasons, right? They may have gone about it backwards, but... But it's the right goal. Doesn't the end justify the means? And I think this passage, in concert with the rest of Scripture, screams out, no. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Now, let's be honest about it. Does it appear that Rebekah and Jacob's motivation was some humble, pure desire for the will of the Lord? Uh, no. Hardly. There is selfishness and personal ambition and striving just written all over this. But even if it was, even if their hearts and motives were just totally pure, perfect focus on the goal and the glory of God, their actions to get there are sinful. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Those who act faithfully are his delight. 
And though the, the context is a little different, I think the principle still applies. Romans chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes, And why not do evil that good may come? As some have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. People were wrongly accusing Paul of making this argument, of teaching that we should sin more and then grace will abound, and if we do evil, then good will come of it. And and Paul says, absolutely not. No way. Sin is not justified. Good things do do not justify a bad strategy, a sinful approach. It's not okay to disobey the Lord because you have some some greater end in mind. This is the exact opposite of Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, a passage we know well. This is how we should live. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Rebecca should have spoken openly, honestly, with her husband, calling him to trust in the Lord, to do what was right. If he refused, she should have waited on the Lord, trusted God. Jacob should have trusted the Lord. God had said that he would be blessed. He didn't have to clamor and and fight and scramble and twist for it. He should have waited patiently for it. Sin cannot be justified. There is no outcome that makes disobedience okay. We see this often, sadly, in the church on a grand scale. We want lots of people in church, right? That's a good goal to get lots of people. And if we want to reach that goal, then we need to stop talking about sin and judgment. Well, we definitely need to get rid of this complementarianism thing. We need to get some ladies up here preaching. We need to be gay-affirming. Because we want people to be here. That's a good thing to have a church building filled with people. And so let's go. Then we're going to grow the church. More than a few churches have gone this route. But but you cannot get to a God-glorifying destination through a God-ignoring path. It simply doesn't work. And that's true as well on an individual level. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? I can clearly see my happiness over here. I have to disobey to get it. Doesn't doesn't he want me to have obedient children? Well, I'm going to have to lose my temper and yell. That's the only way I can get there. Doesn't he want my marriage to be at peace? Then I'm going to have to lie to my wife. No, it simply doesn't work. The ends never justify the means. God's fullest joy and blessing will always be down the path of simple obedience. It will be difficult. It may not be easy to be honest with your wife about the thing that will make her angry, but it will bring joy and peace in the end. Are there sins in your life that you justify? Are there areas in your life that you're not submitting to the Lord and you, you rationalize it? Because you believe that, or, or, that, that the final outcome will be something good. That's, that's nothing other than a lack of faith. It, it's disobedience. It's sin. Repent. Walk humble trust in the Lord. Obey Him. Trust Him with the outcome. So we see this failure of Isaac and Esau. We see the fraud of Rebekah and Jacob. 
In the next few verses, we see the fallout of sin. The fallout of sin. Um, read, read with me from uh, verse 30 down to the end of the chapter. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given him for servants and with grain and wine. I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. But your sword, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she, went, she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? So like waves piling up on top of each other, the, these sinful actions are all coming together and, and the fallout is brutal. Esau returned from his hunt, narrowly missing his brother Jacob as, they, as he made his exit and of course, Isaac is shocked and, and he begins to shake violently upon hearing that, that this is now Esau come. He's in frustration and anger. He asks the question, um, if you are Esau, then who have I just blessed? But he knows the answer. This is the Lord's rebuke of Isaac. His plan is crumbling underneath him. His rebellion has gone nowhere. 
It may be at this point right here that, that Isaac is finally submitting to the Lord. Hebrews 11.20 says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. And as you're reading uh, chapter 27, that maybe seems like a pretty whitewashed account of what happened, uh, unless maybe right here, the author of Hebrews is seeing this and, and seeing this as Isaac's repentance and brokenness before the Lord. And so Isaac says of Jacob in verse 33, yes, and he shall be blessed. Of course, he can say that with confidence, um, not because his words hold some kind of magical power, but because his blessing now aligns with what God had clearly revealed. Those might be the words of Isaac's repentance and his final submission to the Lord. But this is the fallout of Isaac's sin. Um, he, he's crushed before the Lord. Then we see the fallout on Esau. Verse 34, um, he cried out with exceedingly bitter cry. He began to plead with his father for another blessing. Is it, is it too late? Is there anything else that you can give me? But it was too late. In fact, it had long been too late. Esau despised his birthright. He, he sold it to Jacob. Esau was so driven by the passions of his flesh that he had no time for the blessing of the Lord. And now when the blessing of the Lord is taken from him, now he wants it. Now he's crying out, but, but not with humility and faith. He's not submitting to the Lord here. This is just the current object of his fleshly desires. And so he's denied. Hebrews 12, 16 to 17, um, I think brings, uh, warns us as we look at this. See to it that none of you, that no one is sexually immoral. Or unholy like Esau, who sought his, or sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the mess Esau found himself in. Because of his desires, because of his passions. I think if we read this passage carefully and, and in the context of, of Genesis 27... Um, I think it's difficult in English the way that it reads. I don't think Esau was seeking repentance with tears and was unable, was unable to find it. In chapter 27, he is clearly seeking the blessing with tears. That's what he's crying out for, and that's a very different thing. The Greek in, in Hebrews 12 uh, actually very easily allows for that he sought it is feminine and, and repentance and the blessing are both feminine. In English, we use kind of the, the, the nearest object for that verb. In, in Greek, it's, it's more based on gender. It's not impossible for that. It, it's actually fairly logical that, that Esau is seeking the blessing. But of course, he's still seeking it in his pride and his fleshly desires. And he's rejected. He's rejected from the blessing because he had despised it. And, and now, though he cries out for it, it's too late. There's no chance for another way. There is no other path. And so Hebrews warns us, don't despise the blessing of God. Don't be like Esau. 
Don't get so caught up in this world and the desires of the flesh and the things that that are here and now that you walk away from the blessing of the Lord. Don't don't do it. Don't be like Esau and, and forfeit eternal blessing for temporary pleasure. Because in the day of final judgment, it will be too late. You will finally see and desire the Lord's blessing and and it will be too late. The ultimate fallout of Esau's sin uh, is this this anti-blessing that is given to him in verses 39 and 40. It's the opposite of what was given to Jacob. Esau would dwell away from the fatness and the dew of the earth. He would not live in peace but by the sword. There are echoes here in this curse uh, of the curse of God on Cain, who killed his brother Abel and was sent into the wilderness. There's echoes of Canaan, uh, Noah's grandson, who would be a slave to his brothers. There's echoes of Ishmael, who would live by the sword. Moses, as he writes this, is drawing all these together for us. The only redemptive feature here is that last line is that one day Esau's descendants would throw off the yoke of the descendants of Jacob. Um, That seems to be partially fulfilled. 2 Kings 20, the nation of Edom, or the descendants of Esau, rebel and revolt against Judah, and they they throw them off. They're free. But redemptive is not the right word there. The last part of that blessing was whoever would curse Jacob would be cursed, and whoever would bless him would be blessed. Anyone throwing off the yoke of Jacob would be throwing off the blessing of Jacob. Verse 41 then brings us to the fallout of sin on Jacob. His brothers, enraged and hatred toward him, plotted to kill him as soon as his father had died. And so Rebecca schemes again as she uh, is so capable at And she devises another plan to to manipulate her husband to have Jacob sent off to find a wife among her relatives because that would be a safe place. Well, we saw what the Hittite women did to Esau. I can't handle that if that would happen to Jacob. She's she's getting Isaac to come up with the idea to send Jacob off to Padanaram. And this is also the fallout on Rebekah. No doubt her marriage is deeply fractured. What relationship she had with Esau is now destroyed. And as she sends Jacob away, not knowing um, that he will there be deceived by Laban and spend 20 years there, and her beloved son will not return again to her while she lives. The fallout is massive. The shrapnel of sin just causing pain and devastation every corner of their lives. But it's not a surprise. Just as God said from the beginning, sin brings death. You choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? No, you can't do it. You can't carry sin along and get away with it. Moses would warn the people of Israel, Numbers 32, 23, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. The words of Paul, Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whoever, um, for whatever one sows, that will, he will also reap. Jacob was fearful of being found out because it would be uh, apparent that he was mocking his father. 
And Isaac was mocked. He was fooled and made a fool of. But God is not mocked. God is not mocked. You will not manipulate him. You will not get away with your sin. You will not carry fire close to your chest and come away unscathed. Now what you sow, you will reap. And there are physical, earthly consequences to our sin. It will end in pain. But there are also eternal consequences. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The pain, the chaos caused by sin in this life is meant as as warning signs, as rumble strips for an infinitely greater danger, the eternal consequences that lie ahead. Chapter 27 We see this mess of sin, the pain, the brokenness, the destruction in this family, the the heartache and and the division and the separation and strife. And yet, we take just one step back. There's more to this picture. This story is not only about the failure of Isaac and Esau. This story is not only about the fraud of, of Rebekah and Jacob and the fallout of sin. It's also about the faithfulness of the Lord. That's the last and greatest point of chapter 27. That's where this chapter fits in the the larger flow of the book of Genesis. This is about God's sovereignty. This is about his glorious ability through the rebellion and deceit and corruption and brokenness to bring about his perfect plan. Even though Isaac and Esau totally rejected his plan. They, they did everything they could to try to, to, to stop his plan, even though Rebecca and Jacob tried to, to sidetrack it and, and twist it for their own purposes. God's plan was not hindered, not in the slightest. God has no plan B's. God is not rolling with the punches. God is not looking down the corridor of history to see a a plethora of options and able to somehow make it work. No, God is working out his perfect plan with precision, ruling in, in perfect control over and above, even through the sinfulness of man. Praise God for it. Praise God that our sin will never derail his sovereignty. Chapter 27 shows the the faithfulness of the Lord working out his promise, his plan to rescue sinners even through the chaos of sin. And of course it has to be so because this entire world is saturated with sin. If the Lord is not sovereign over sinful decisions, then he is sovereign over nothing at all. And we see that sovereignty play out most clearly as we approach the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, like Isaac, betrayed with a kiss from the one he loved. And yet John 6, 64 says, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. It was no surprise. It was part of God's plan. Acts 2, 23, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now they were lawless. 
They were guilty. They will be held accountable for their actions. In their wickedness, they carried out the definite plan of God. Acts 4, 27, 28, the the believers are gathered together in prayer and they're, they're even more explicit. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pontius Pilate, Herod, those who cried out, crucify him, those who drove the nails into his hands, those who twisted the laws out of jealousy and spite, killed the very Son of God. And they were ordained by God to do exactly what his hand and his plan had predetermined to take place. And so it is that God is working through the wicked actions of sinful men, actions that they carried out, actions for which they will be held responsible, precisely fulfilling his plan. And so for for one and the same action, they are wicked and condemnable, and God is infinitely glorious. And in that brought about the only way that those very sinners could be saved. Jesus' death on the cross, the greatest evil ever committed, brought about the greatest good ever imagined. By the death of Jesus on the cross, the curse of sin from the garden could be broken. The penalty of death could be paid. The the rescue for every sinner who would come to him in repentance and faith would be accomplished. The promise of God to restore this new humanity uh, to an eternity of peace and joy and rest of freedom from sin, from sorrow, from pain and death would be absolutely perfectly secured. God is in the mess. God is working through our sin, our brokenness, and he is able to bring glory out of the ashes. Young David expelled from Yale, sold his life in the ministry for the satisfaction of a delicious insult. Eventually, he would graciously accept the Lord's sovereignty over his situation. And rather than pastoring a church and preaching the gospel, he went inland to the native tribes as a missionary. He served for four short years with Precious little success, very few converts battling with depression. Faithfully, he served until at the young age of 29, tuberculosis would bring him to his knees and eventually to his death. Likely that would have been the last any of us would ever have heard of David or spoken of David. It looked like a train wreck, except that he spent his last months being cared for by a young lady named Jerusha Edwards, the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards would take uh, David's diary and collect them into a book called The Life of David Brainerd. And that little book was published and has been republished and republished up until this day and has been claimed as a pivotal instrument in the motivation for missions, specifically by 
Henry Martin, William Carey, Robert Murray McShane, Adoniram Judson, Jim Elliott, and, and countless others. Of course, the impact of just those men on the, 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 the gospel witness in missions is just incalculable. David Brainerd's impact for the work of gospel missions around the world is just about unmatched. Where did it begin? In a sinful outburst. In a, in a life broken by sin that God was working through. How? Because through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by faith in him, his death on the cross, we're not defined by our failures. We're not defined by our, our sin. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even our, our sin and our failure, for which we absolutely ought to grieve and repent, can be used for God's glory and, and the ultimate good. And our ultimate good. Now we should, we should see sin then. Fearfully still. We should not say, should we, should we sin more then that God would, would do something good through it? By no means, absolutely not. But what we can do is walking in humble repentance with the eyes of faith is look back at even the lowest points in our lives, seeing our darkest moments, our worst decisions, those, those nearly repressed memories that make you want to just crawl up into a ball and disappear, and see them through the lens of the gospel, tinted with the faithfulness of the Lord. And we can see, or at least we can trust, that God is at work through it that he will accomplish his good purpose and in spite of our sin and even through it, he will bring about glory from the ashes, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. God is right there at work in the mess. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you see our mess, that you see our sin so much more clearly than we do. You know the worst of our worst. And yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So there's the worst of sinners, the glory of God and the riches of your mercy might be put on display. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are a God who rescues from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. And who can take what is broken and make beauty. Father, I pray for those who are discouraged. I pray for those who see the brokenness and the, and the temporal consequences of sin in their lives, who look back on, on bad decisions and see pain, God, that you would give them eyes of faith to trust you. Father, at the same time, there are any who are walking in rebellion or self-deceit, God, that you would open their eyes, open our eyes, that we might see sin for what it is, that we might walk away, we might turn to you in repentance and faith. God, would you be at work would you take these broken lives in your sovereign and all-wise hands 